Well, if you have been joining us at all in 2021, you know that our theme is a journey of faith. And as we've mentioned already this morning, this is our 150th year. And that phrase, journey of faith, for us is not just uh, a theme. It is actually the phrase that we believe encapsulates our story. We have been on a journey of faith as a church. And so during each season of the year, we have been exploring various facets of faith. So for the fall, we've chosen this theme, what do you believe? How do you posit your faith? How do you develop your faith? What does that mean? And so we've been making our way through an array of topics. Um, You'll remember that I began this series with a message entitled, What Do You Believe About Belief? as we were just thinking together about what does it mean to even have a belief system? And then what do you believe about truth? What do you believe about Jesus was the message Kurt shared with us. Last Sunday morning, I shared a message about the government. What do you believe about the government? Next Sunday morning, the title of the message is what do you believe about anthropology? It's a conversation of the biblical view, the Christian orthodox understanding of anthropology, what it means to be male, and female and the whole conversation about gender and sexuality and relational constructs that's in our culture today. Then the next Sunday morning, what do you believe about qualifications for ministry in the local church? And then on our anniversary Sunday, the message will be, what do you believe about the future? And then finally, what do you believe about eternity? You know, some of these topics are really challenging and really require a lot of clarity. Um, Some of the topics are a little clearer. They may not necessarily require the wisdom of Solomon, but they are worth a conversation. So this morning, if you have your copy of the New Testament, we've looked at the book of Acts a good bit this year. I want you to look at just a couple of verses with me out of Acts 10, and I've entitled the message today, What Do You Believe About Prejudice? And we are going to use a text that is uh, buried in the context of a particular story out of the life of Simon Peter. It's a very familiar story to you. It is where Simon Peter makes his way from Joppa to Caesarea to visit with this Roman soldier, Cornelius. And just two verses, and I'll come back and contextualize them for us here in just a moment. But in Acts 10, verse 34, Luke tells us this. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. As I said, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Systemic racism. Critical race theory. Black lives matter. Could you pick three more controversial phrases in America today? Just mentioning them causes some of us to shiver just a little. We have certain views about them. It's fascinating as we've watched all of this unfold. 
I would say regardless of your views on those three ideas or phrases or others that might be just as provocative, I think everybody within the sound of my voice this morning would agree that there has been pain and suffering inflicted on some human beings by other human beings simply because of prejudice. Would we not all agree with that at least? There has been some pain and suffering inflicted on other human beings by human beings simply because of prejudice. Well, what is prejudice? Well, let me just read to you what the Cambridge Dictionary says about it. It is an unfair and unreasonable opinion or feeling, especially when formed without enough thought or knowledge to pre-judge is really what the word means. Most of you know I was reared in Birmingham, Alabama during the civil rights era. Might I say I know a thing or two about prejudice. In 1963, I was just a small boy and don't really remember any of this per se, but Birmingham, my hometown, became the epicenter for conversations and conflict about prejudice, about social injustice and racial tension in America. I am old enough to remember seeing some things as a small boy. I remember the protests in my hometown. I remember the visits by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King to my town. I remember the challenges of integration in our schools when I was a small boy. I remember seeing signs scattered across my community that said, whites only. Or sometimes it might say, coloreds. I remember as a small boy, the division of waiting rooms when you would pay a visit to the local dentist or doctor where there was a waiting room reserved for whites only and another waiting room for coloreds. I can remember as a small boy in one of those waiting rooms peering around my mother's legs and looking into that other room and my eyes catching the eyes of a small colored boy as he was called in my home. And we didn't know why he was in that room and I was in this room. We were too little to know. All we knew were we were little boys and we could keep playing with one another even though we were divided by so many things that were beyond our control. I don't have to unpack my hometown's sordid history with regards to uncivil behavior, unrest, and racial discrimination. But the story of prejudice is not just Birmingham's story. 
It's America's story. In 1790, our framers passed the Immigration Act. We were a young nation, barely in existence. The Immigration Act of 1790 was the uniform rule of naturalization for citizenship in these new United States. It was limited to free white men who had resided in America for at least two years. Now through the years, the Immigration Act would be modified. The number of years required for a free white man would shift to 14 years, to five years, and it would be altered and tested in the courts for many, many years to come. But would you believe it wasn't until 1965 that immigration, with the passing of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, that finally, after all of those years, the quotas that still restricted immigration based on race and national origin were finally removed. It took almost 200 years <clears throat> to remove that language that had to do with being white. <clears throat> but we also know the story in America doesn't just involve voluntary immigration with regards to prejudice. There was also forced immigration that is a blight on our nation's history, and that is the atrocity of slavery. I realize that this topic makes us uncomfortable. It should. I also realize that whenever you bring up the topic of prejudice, it can make us defensive. I get it. As I said, I was reared in the epicenter of the examples of prejudice in our nation. Here's what I would say about it this morning. As I see it, the problem we have with prejudice is not in its identification or its definition. It is in its eradication. That's the challenge. It's pretty easy to define prejudices. I think we could all really quickly come to an agreement on what it means. I would also say I think it's pretty easy to spot, both in ourselves and in others. But here's the rub. What do you do about it? How do you get rid of it? What's the path to address it? Well, much has been said about prejudice in our nation's history. In fact, throughout all of history. Maybe you've heard or read what E.B. White has written. E.B. White is the author of Stuart Little and Charlotte's Web. He said, prejudice is a great time saver. You can form opinions without having to get the facts. <clears throat> what an apt word. The poet Maya Angelou she says, prejudice is a burden that confuses the past, threatens the future, and renders the present inaccessible. 
Well, I want you to think about the text that we read from the scripture a moment ago. Simon Peter. Would we not all agree that Simon Peter is one of the heroes of our faith? We usually refer to him as Saint Peter, a miracle of transformation. And indeed, I believe that is true. Simon Peter was a product of his day, like us. He was a first century Jewish man. And so he carried with him some deeply held theological convictions rooted in his understanding that the Jews were God's chosen people, God's chosen instrument through whom he was going to work to redeem the whole world. But I would also contend that Simon Peter, being a first century Jewish man, presumably carried with him some cultural and ethnic biases. For example, how do you think Simon Peter felt about Gentiles? Samaritans, Roman soldiers. What was that rooted in? Somewhat theological convictions, I would say, but also some cultural biases. As I said, he was a man who was a first century Jew. My goodness, how often do you think Simon Peter had heard an Orthodox Jew pray, thanking God that he was not a woman or a Gentile? It was woven into the fabric of their society. Hard to escape. You see, prejudice, though, it's, it's not just Birmingham's story. Prejudice is not just America's story. Prejudice is a part of the human story. Do you know if you go all the way back in your Bibles to the very first book, Genesis 17, verse 23, you have the first reference to slavery. The Bible tells us that Abraham was engaged in this journey, not only his own family, but the text says those who had been bought by Abraham. Foreigners that Abraham had purchased. There are examples of slavery, discrimination, prejudice, and racism found throughout the Bible. I would say this also about prejudice this morning. Prejudice lies at the root of many ills, <clears throat> not the least of which is racism. There are a lot of maladies that grow out of prejudice. Nationalism, discrimination, sexism, classism, but one of those is racism. And I believe we would all agree, once again, regardless of our understanding of the ideas behind it all, we would all agree that racism has reared its ugly head throughout history and it's easily documented. Genocide, the whole science of eugenics, Holocaust, slavery, irrational hatred, institutional regulations, legislative controls, societal 
norms, all of them have been a part of this sordid story. It's amazing how deeply rooted it can be and how broadly applied it can become. It's amazing how it can hide itself sometimes, buried beneath legislation, societal norms, and even the phraseology that we find in our vernacular. Some of you have probably heard the phrase, be careful about buying that, you don't wanna get gypped. Where does that word come from? It's a slang word, isn't it? Applied to the Romani people. But we don't call them Romanis, do we? What do we call them? Gypsies. And the whole idea woven into our societal norm is that they are there to get you. And so it's just made its way into our vernacular. It sounds innocent enough, doesn't it? But it's just a really small example of of how quickly something can become normalized and without even any thought. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. was not a perfect man. He was a pastor of a church in my home state. He was the leader of the civil rights era. And he was a flawed human being. But he had a noble idea that he gave his life for. And here's what he said. He never lost his optimism in spite of all that happened to him. He said this, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. What a hopeful, optimistic statement. Well, I think we'd all agree it's a challenging conversation. Let me offer you one other word. James Baldwin says this, and there's a lot of wisdom in it, in my opinion. He says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So I invite you to face it with me this morning. So let's get back to Simon Peter. Back to this text, Acts 10. What is going on in Acts 10? You remember the story? Cornelius is this Roman soldier who lives in Caesarea and he is living in a Jewish society. Even though Caesarea was somewhat of a Roman Gentile town, or a lot of Jews in Caesarea. And he became a God-fearer. He was a man who prayed to God and He was searching for God. And so Luke tells us that God sent an angel to um, Cornelius. And he said to Cornelius, send somebody to Joppa and find a man named Simon called Peter. He's staying at the home of Simon the Tanner's house. And he has a message for you. You remember this story? So Cornelius has this vision, this Gentile has this vision from an angel from God. Meanwhile, the next day, Simon Peter is in Joppa and it's noontime and he's hungry and he fell into a trance that many of you men in this room can understand. 
He was dreaming about food, right? Y'all remember this? So Simon Peter has this vision, falls into a trance. And what was the vision? This, this tablecloth, right, drops down out of heaven. And on the tablecloth are all these animals and birds and reptiles. And what did God tell Simon Peter to do? Remember? Kill something and eat it. And what did Simon Peter say? Nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. Not, not, th these are unclean animals here. And I've never eaten anything unclean. And you remember what God said to Simon Peter? Don't you call impure what God has declared clean. Remember that? Here's what's interesting. If you still have your Bibles open, Acts 10... I want you to notice just a little footnote in the story. Um, Acts 10, verse 16. This happened three times. Isn't that interesting? One was not enough. Two, not quite. Three times. So Simon Peter will then go, he gets this message to go to Caesarea to meet Cornelius, Simon Peter goes to meet Cornelius and when he gets there, he sees this God-fearing man who's open to the gospel and what does Simon Peter do? He connects the dream to what he's actually seeing right now in real life and he realizes that God gave him this message that really wasn't about food at all, it was about human beings, right? And Simon Peter was like, wow, <laughs> I've lived my whole life with some convictions and biases and a, and a worldview, the lens through which I see everything. And now all of a sudden, right here today, everything has changed. And now I see things very differently. God has shown me, he says. Look, look at verse uh, 28 of Acts 10. You are well aware it's against our law for Jews to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. What a statement from a first century Jewish man. Something has happened to Simon Peter. So Cornelius told him about his vision. And then Simon Peter says this, verse 34, it is true, God does not show favoritism, but no matter who you are, he says, you come to the Lord sincerely and you're going to be accepted. Wow, what a, what a beautiful journey in this man's life. It's not a perfect journey, he's gonna struggle with it. As a matter of fact, he's gonna come to Antioch and he and Paul are gonna get into an argument because Peter's having trouble with this. He struggles with it. As a matter of fact, this week I'm gonna ask you to read the book of Galatians. And I love the book of Galatians. It's where Paul shares with us this, this whole theology that the age to come is now here and we're supposed to live like this now, no longer like that. It's, it's a new era. It's, it's the initiation of a new age. And he says in, in Galatians, he tells us in Galatians 2, when Simon Peter came to Antioch, and he was still struggling with this very thing. I opposed him to his face. 
And then they were able to travel to Jerusalem together and participate in the Jerusalem council and try to settle this once and for all, this whole Jew-Gentile conversation. And what will Paul eventually say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 28? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. In other words, Paul says we are all the same, created in God's image, and we're all one in Christ Jesus, he would say. See, there's the answer. We are one in Christ Jesus. There's the answer. You know, old Kirkpatrick was right at Southwestern Seminary. I had him for theology, systematic theology, against the counsel of my good friends. Don't take Kirkpatrick. I took him, and we had these pop quizzes every day. And Kirkpatrick, and here's the challenge with him, so often the pop quizzes had nothing to do with what you had been studying. But here's what he told us. You will always get credit in this class if you don't know the answer, just put Jesus. You'll get credit if you just put Jesus. I can't tell you how many times I put Jesus. But you know what he was teaching us? In Christ Jesus is always the answer. You want the answer to prejudice? You're going to find it in Christ Jesus. He is our hope. As a matter of fact, one day, Revelation 7, verse 9 says, we're going to be gathered around the throne of the Lamb and there will be people there from every nation, tribe, people, and language. (laughs) And prejudice will be eradicated once and for all. Are y'all still with me? All right, well, let's talk about real quickly. What should our response be to prejudice as Christians? I wanna just give you a, a, a quick answer to that. First of all, because of our worldview, we believe in the inherent dignity and worth of every human being. What does our worldview include? The image of God. Every human being has been created in the image of God. That means that his signature is written across the canvas of every single human life. Why does my fellow human have value, inherent worth, or dignity? Does it have anything to do with their background, their ethnicity, their, their uh, nation of origin, the color of their skin, or the potential they represent to humanity? No. No. Every fellow human has value, worth, and dignity because of one simple fact. Each person bears the image of God. No matter who they are, no matter what they're capable of. So my worldview forces me to deal with this issue. Second, prejudice and its ensuing ills are all results of the fallen nature of humanity and must be acknowledged as sin. Pure and simple. We don't need to explain it away. We don't need to justify it. We don't need to defend it. We don't need to excuse it. Prejudice, racism, discrimination, all fall under the same category. 
sin. Third, we begin to address the sin of prejudice by removing the log from our own eye. (laughs) That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, get the log out of your own eye first, right? Before you get that splinter out of your brother's eye. It always starts with us. So this morning, I want to encourage you and challenge you. We always start with ourselves. Lest you and I refuse to accept prejudice as normal, as acceptable, as understandable. I get it. There's a fine line between discernment and prejudice. True? Is that not true? Sometimes you have to make a discerning decision about something or someone. But let's you and I be careful to not let that discernment bleed over into just pure, unbridled prejudice. That's something completely different. And you and I need to have sensitivity to it. We're Christians. Lord, help us if we're not sensitive to it. Right now, we're, we're trying to to work, there's a lot of Christian organizations that are at work right now in some really hard places in the world. And one of the things that we're dealing with is prejudice. Prejudice is really difficult to overcome. Helping some folks in the most vulnerable places in the world who are targets of persecution simply because of the tribe they happen to belong to. No other reason, just the tribe they belong to. It's the only explanation. And we're doing our best to encourage them. So we begin with ourselves. And then one practical word that we'll have to figure out how to do. And here's what I would say. Through God's guidance and power, we commit ourselves to be agents of reconciliation and restoration in our own communities. I don't have the answer for America. (laughs) I I don't have the answer for the world. I just, I don't know. It's a complex world we live in. But I live in Arlington. Don't you think as the pastor of First Baptist Arlington, I ought to feel some obligation for Arlington? Don't you think I should? Don't you want me to? As a leader in this community, to, to, to feel some sense of obligation for the town in which I serve and I love so much. And so I want you to know, there are many of us engaged in this conversation. And I praise God for that. Here in our own town, our mayor, our former mayor, Jeff Williams, who's a member of our church, will be in our next worship service. Jeff put together the Unity Council here in Arlington to address racial concerns, to fact find, to make pertinent recommendations. And here was the wisdom there in that particular decision. He and the city council brought together people from all over this city, from all walks of life, from every racial Uh, group, every ethnic group, and they included the clergy, and we served, and we were interviewed, and we we, um, had our input into this conversation to come up with some ideas to help us move forward. We've worked with city leaders, the Arlington Police Department, to address policing practices in our city, and it was welcomed by our police department, and it led to city leaders asking clergy for their input about the selection of the new police chief. Some monumental changes that has led to goodwill and a sense of involvement in this community. The clergy, the pastors in this city 
are working together across racial and denominational lines to engage Arlington with the truth of the gospel, with the love of Jesus, with communication. And we live together in a community and fellowship. So we want to serve our city. So we meet regularly together on Zoom, in person, and we talk about the various pertinent issues that we're facing as a city. It is the sweetest fellowship and it has produced some of, the, some of the best actions that I've ever experienced as a pastor. The point is, you start where you are and then you give God a chance to work. You have to admit that things were wrong, but you don't live mired in it. In March of 1965, many of you know this story out of my life, but John Lewis led a group of mainly church people who had been gathered on that Sunday morning for worship. And they just walked across a bridge in Selma, Alabama. That Sunday is called Bloody Sunday, historically, where they were met with violence. <clears throat> huge group of unarmed black citizens. And two days later, Martin Luther King came to Selma and organized another march that was more peacefully done. And many of these same people were allowed to march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and they made their way all the way to Montgomery. Strange irony, Kennedy Jones is an African-American leader in our city, he's a pastor just around the corner from us on Park Row, the Greater Community Baptist Church. He was there when I got here. Kennedy's daddy marched across that bridge that Sunday morning, 1965. And he was beaten that day and taken to the hospital. It was a very sad day for their family. Two days later, my daddy was on that bridge. My daddy was driving a flower truck and he was a wholesale flower salesman. And he had a delivery in South Selma. If you know anything about Selma, the only way out is across Edmund Pettus Bridge to come back home. Daddy got to the Edmund Pettus Bridge and it was blocked, prepared for this protest march. But guess what? <clears throat> My daddy told these a patrolmen, I've got to get home. And he had a police escort across that bridge and made it safely home. Only difference between Kennedy's daddy and my daddy Kennedy's daddy was black. My daddy was white. My daddy drove across that bridge in safety. Kennedy's daddy will never forget walking across that bridge. 55 years later, Kennedy and I lead a march in downtown Arlington as two brothers, sharing a common past, but a really, really bright future hallelujah so do you think I'm committed to this issue yes let's give God a chance to convict us to heal us to give us creative ideas how together we can move forward and slay the dragon of prejudice to the glory of God may it be so Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we bow today, Lord, in your presence, humbly and gratefully. 
You have shown yourself to be a good God. And we thank you for it. And Lord, we, we need to have sometimes hard conversations. Today is one of those. As I said, Lord, I know it makes us uncomfortable, defensive. But as believers, called by you, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and challenged to present to the world an age to come, may we be up to the task. Guide us in our journey of faith, and may you find us faithful. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand together if you're in this room. We're going to give you a chance to respond. Kurt and Katie will be here at the front. God's leading you to join our church. Make a public decision. If you're online, you can go to fpca.org slash hello and do that. You can go to our Welcome Home Center just after this service and do the same. But it may be that God's just speaking to you about this conversation, just stirring in your heart. Maybe not necessarily anything in particular, but just, just an openness to continued development and journey together, asking God for his creative wisdom and leadership in our lives so that we might be his people in this place for this time.